This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. Quote, just as it's better to light up others than to shine alone, it is better to share the fruits of one's contemplation with others than to contemplate in solitude. Thus, St Thomas Aquinas described his vocation not only as a teacher but also as a Dominican friar and philosopher at the University of Paris. In the 13th century, the religious orders of the Dominicans and the Franciscans were a great force for change in Catholic Europe. They thrived in the emerging towns and cities of the High Middle Ages, leading crusades and changing the way the Church dealt with heretics. These two orders were also responsible for reconciling classical and Christian philosophy. Their studies of Aristotle and Islamic scholars paved the way for the Renaissance. They changed the curriculum at the universities of Paris and Oxford. So how did these orders come to dominate the spiritual and academic life of the 13th century? How did they manage to accumulate such huge wealth while professing allegiance to lives of poverty? With me to discuss the Grey Friars and the Black Friars is Henrietta Leiser, medieval historian and fellow of St Peter's College, Oxford, Anthony Kenny, philosopher and former Master of Balliol College, Oxford, and Alexander Murray, medieval historian and emeritus fellow of University College, Oxford. Henrietta Leiser, the Franciscans and the Dominicans, uh, the Grey Friars and the Black Friars, were the first mendicant orders in the Catholic Church. How did they emerge? They emerged from a background of a totally changed Europe, which has become much more city-based rather than agriculturally um, focused. They um, they don't, of course, come out of the blue. I mean, it seems as if that's that's the case. But actually, from the late 10th century, I think one can say the traditional Benedictine way of life had increasingly been challenged. This was no longer seen as appropriate, really, for the needs of this new mercantile class. The traditional Benedictine life being? Being based very much on um, big rural monasteries and which were no longer appropriate and which didn't really serve the needs of the laity. And so from the the late 10th century on, you've got itinerant preachers who want to suggest a different way of life, one which is less focused on vicarious piety and more really encouraging people to become penitents, to find their own way of living a Christian life that's in the world, so you no longer have to need... You don't have to leave the world any longer to become a good Christian. You can do it yourself with guidance, and it's precisely that guidance that the mendicants try to provide. It's interesting to probe just a bit more at the roots of that, uh, you know, because you have these great abbeys, the Cistercian and the Benedictine abbey, and they were part of... The Cistercians were farmers, and they were part of the world, in that sense, meeting other farmers, and let's call them farmers, and so on and so forth. And, and so was there anything else springing this need forward? Was there a recovery of a belief in the Gospels or something? Well, of course, the Cistercians themselves are, in a way, a break away from the Benedictine monasteries of the, of the kind of 9th and 10th century. The Cistercians a paradoxical order in the same way that the mendicants become because the Cistercians originally try to leave um, wealth behind them to set up in, in, in rural places and they become very rich as sheep farmers but that isn't really their original intention. And they too, like the mendicants, are much more concerned with the individual seeking salvation rather than being a great order that is simply praying for the needs of others. I mean, they certainly do that but they are actually looking for individual salvation. And so they are, in a way, a sort of halfway house, I think, between the Benedictines and the 
and the mendicants. So at the end of the 12th, early 13th century, this is gathering force and the time is as we're ripe for a, for a, for a bigger move. And forward. you're right. I mean, there's a switch to a kind of New Testament-based um, Christianity rather than an Old Testament-based Christianity. But all these things are only possible because of the increased prosperity of the time. You can't possibly start talking about poverty unless actually the world is very rich. I mean, it's just not, it's not appropriate, it's not attractive, and it's not what anybody's... I mean, poverty before, say, the 12th century is something that's rather that people fear um, rather than that they worry that they, they, they don't worry about riches. This is something which everybody kind of wants. But when you get to a certain point of prosperity, then you begin to think, help, is this dragging me down and, and taking me towards hell if rather than being a reflection yes, of heaven? Uh, Alexander Murray, let's follow that point. The founder of the Franciscan St. Francis. Um, what do we know of his early life and how he started preaching? Well, we ought to know a great deal because there's a huge amount of literature about him. And the trouble is, as with almost any very famous and influential person, the literature has different slants on it because different schools come in and slightly change the story. But I think that the reality that we can see quite clearly is that he was somebody of quite extraordinary, I think, to say religious genius is one expression people might use. He was a young man of, born in uh, Assisi, father of a wealthy merchant, at a time when I think one would say that European capitalism was really beginning to take off. and His father was a successful long-distance merchant. He'd been in France, actually, when Francis was born, which is why he was called Francis. And Anybody called Francis can think of that because that's how it all began, male or female. Um, he was born and he grew up like a wealthy, wealthy young man. He went to parties and he sort of flirted with the girls and he was going off, in fact, to fight in a war in Sicily when something inside him, which had been brewing for some time, said, you know, this is not for you. And you've, you know, Christ died for us in poverty and simplicity um, and that this is, you've got to follow him. And so he, then with, he gave up his property. His father was extremely angry with giving up all his property. There was a great parental problem there and gave up fighting and um, built a little, uh, or uh, obtained permission to have a little tiny community near, just outside Assisi, of prayer. Now, this is where the problem arose, because, as Henry has just said, there were quite a number of people who sort of had this spiritual urge in the 12th century. Some of them were somewhat suspect, because they wanted the church sort of, they just um, cocked a snook at the church. Uh, St. Francis did not want to do that. He thought, saw the church as something which was uh, the great sort of ship in which everybody had to travel, even if it was corrupt. Uh, he didn't like it being corrupt, but he wanted to stay within it. The Bishop of Assisi fortunately happened to be going to Rome for business, and St. Francis said, will you take me with you so that I can get approval for our way of life? And then one of the historic meetings of history took place in which uh, Francis was presented to Pope Innocent III, he was another very great man in his field. And Innocent III at first thought, you know, we can't encourage this sort of, um, you know, this sort of rebel way of life. And he thought about it a lot and realised that what Francis wanted to do was to live as closely as possible to the gospel. And then there was a dream. If you don't believe me, you can go to Assisi and it's pictured there by somebody who I think is not Giotto, but thought by... <laughs> there's a fight about that, I think. But um, you can see Innocent is looking at the church which has been recognised as St John Lateran and it was crumbling and there's a poor man holding it up and he comes out of this and thinks, you know, send for that chap and he talks to Francis and says, look, if you'll take an oath of obedience to me and your followers will take one to you, the system will hold together 
and then I'm with you. And I see that as an enormously influential decision by a great ruler and a a religious genius, because it meant the order could start. It is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, because he preached, uh, this is your phrase, without licence in, in, in Assisi, and he went with uh, went with a few followers to Rome, and then he's, he's established when so many of these, uh, let's call them outside just to make it easy, had been rejected, they'd been thought of uh, getting in the way, trivial or even uh, op- opposition. And he was taken on at a time when, as you use your phrase, again, capitalism was, was taking off. But his doctrine against ownership, France's doctrine against ownership, extended even to the possession of prayer books. And even education was a possession that could be rejected because what mattered was you had to follow in the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ in pop, and that was that. So he was, he was very hard line in that sense, wasn't he? Very much so. He was, poverty was his sort of lady poverty. He was married to lady poverty. This was an imaginary figure. And uh, as you mentioned the prayer book, there is a, one of the stories about him in, in a life is one of the brethren comes up to him later and says, can't I even own a prayer book? And Francis says, no, because within a few days he was starting to say, Brother John, give me my prayer book. And this is all possession. So he was very strong against possession. And as you say, the intellectual stuff, he thought these people were just being too clever and they were rising in the world as lawyers and the rest of it. And he wanted complete simplicity, as with the poor, and the gospel was enough. But I want to come back to that because because it made it very difficult simply to live a life. And yes, this, the indeed. paradox was that they became wealthy and great scholars. But, but we'll come back to that in a second. Anthony Kenny, at around the same time, uh, uh, by a, 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 call it a blessed coincidence, we have the Dominicans being established by another young man of what you call good or well family, Dominic. Uh, can you tell us how he established that? Well, Dominic was um, a Spaniard and he was, um, I think, a much more down-to-earth and practical person than um, St. Francis, who was much more romantic, mystical person than Dominic. And Dominic had a fairly conventional clerical career to begin with. But he was uh, going to Denmark, and I can't remember why he was going to Denmark, but he never got there at Toulouse. He... um, met up with uh, a lot of heretics, Manichaean heretics, that's to say heretics who believed not just in a single god who made the world and saw that it was good, but two opposing divine principles, one good and one bad. And these um, heretical groups, uh, they also had a rather eccentric uh, pattern of the spiritual career um, at an early stage and for the hoi polloi. Uh, the moral rules were pretty lax. You could do almost anything you liked. But then, at a higher stage, you had to be uh, enormously austere and devout. Uh, So austere and devout that they were rather shaming the Cistercians by being much more austere and devout than the Cistercians. So Dominic thought this was a bad show, and he began by founding convents of nuns who were to be even more austere than the most austere um, heretics. The heretics were talking about other Cathars. Yes, that's yes. right. They're given lots of different names yeah. by different people. Um, and then he began uh, to take on, as it were, the intellectual challenge as well as the spiritual challenge. He wanted... Uh, he, Though his followers took vows of poverty, he didn't emphasise poverty in the way that Francis did. What he did emphasise was, was learning. There was that wonderful quotation from St Thomas Aquinas... Uh, who was the best known of all 
Dominic's followers, um, saying that the vocation was, first of all, to contemplate, uh, but not to let your contemplation be like a light shining alone, but to spread out uh, the results of your contemplation. And that became the motto of the Dominican order. Uh, like St. Francis, St. Dominic uh, had to get his order approved by the Pope. Uh, the Pope said, well, you've got to take on one of the regular rules, and he chose one that uh, was attributed to St. Augustine, the Augustinian rule. Rule uh, being a way of life. As a way of life. Yes. Uh, it was um, a simplified version of monastic life. They were, uh, as, as people have been saying, they were mobile urban people rather than people living on, on monasteries. But they did sing the office in an abbreviated form, the, the, um, the hours of divine worship during the, the day and night. But the emphasis was very much on preaching. That was why they were called Friars Preachers. That's their official name. They were called black friars, even though rather confusingly they were white, but they did have a kind of black overcoat when they went out. Uh, the um, Franciscans, because they wore brown, were called grey friars, so I hope it's, that's all quite clear. <laughs> um, but this the, is the territory we're in this morning. <laughs> <laughs> but the, um, the friars preacher, almost everybody calls them Dominicans because of St Dominic, and it was their main job was to fight heresy. And if you go into the wonderful Dominican church of Santa Maria Novella in Florence. You'll see a huge fresco of the saying what the job of the Dominicans is. And you will see on the fresco a lot of sheep uh, who are the, the faithful Christians. These sheep are being attacked by wolves who are the wicked heretics. But the wolves are being beaten off by black and white spotted dogs who are the Dominicans, the Domini Canes, <laughs> the dogs of the Lord. The, um, uh, I'm going to come, if I could come to you, can you explain the differences between these two? We've got these two styles. How did Dominic, the Dominicans, for instance, become, they founded the Inquisition, which didn't become the terrible Inquisition for a while, but they did found the Inquisition. They, the Pope found them very useful, uh, not only to think, to outthink the heresies of the, of the Cathars, let's say, and so on and so forth, but to, to lead the force which led, which, which went into that terrible crusade against them. So can you just give us the, they're established these, these two young men have established these orders, can you briskly give us the differences and then we can move on to talk about well, the, the ideas. Dominicans, from the beginning, um, realised that to, to beat the heretics, it isn't it, yes, you've got to lead a holy life, but you also do need learning. So from the beginning they're a learned order, whereas the Franciscans um, as Sandy has suggested you know, don't think that you'd own books and books will probably just lead to pride, and so from the beginning there's a very different feel about them. The Franciscans simply want to follow the gospel and that's it, to live a simple pure life and to be an example to others by the simplicity of their lives, whereas the Dominicans from day one want to argue, want to go out there, want to get to the university and sort of um, fine-tune their arguments so that the heretics can actually be beaten in disputation. There are two or three things, uh, many more really, as I know, but just to talk about two or three. One was that these mobile, one of you mentioned the word mobile, mobile forces were getting involved in the new civic life. Another, that the ideas that they came from forced them into rethinking 
uh, Christianity, the, the radical idea of, uh, of, of poverty reintroduced by Francis, but held to quite ruthlessly, meant they had to examine the Gospels. And the Dominicans' the idea of fighting the heresies meant they had to re-examine. So the, the intellectual, as well as the, 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 the going around being a different sort of mobile force in the new towns, are all coming together. Can you just finally contextualise that for us better than I've done? Then we can well, I think on. you've done it very well, actually, that, that the, 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 this ideal did make people look again at the Gospels and think about their thing. I, I see the history of the church as like a Loch Ness monster, actually, in which every time there's a twist going up, it's a great reform movement, whether it's the Cluniac monasteries or the Cistercians. And then, as you know, it becomes the establishment, bit by bit, the original fervour and revolution goes away. And to some extent, both these orders are one of those twists up. And then they start go the way of all flesh, and other orders start taking over the lead in the 14th and 15th centuries. They don't become as rich, I think, as you make out. It's not, that's not their problem. However, having the way I see this is slightly different, I think, from my two colleagues, because I was much influenced once by reading the sermons of a reforming bishop in the 13th century and saw the mendicants through his eyes. And as I see it, none of us would have heard of Francis or Dominic if it hadn't been for the orders, and none of us would have heard of the orders if it hadn't been for the reforming bishops. Uh, of whom Innocent III was the principal, the Pope at Rome. The biggest thing that he did in his life was not the Albigensian Crusade, anything like that. That was an aside. It's rather like the Iraq War for Mr Blair. You know, it's sort of something that came up after the programme was invented. Um, it was the Fourth Lateran Council, which is getting all the bishops of Europe together to say, what does the church need to do in order to make a reality of the Christian life for everybody? And if you read through that, you see that it all hangs on the parish priest, you know, that they must be well-educated, they must behave themselves, they must keep the rules, etc. Um, the awful problem was that there weren't enough of these parish priests, at least there weren't enough good ones. I mean, there were some good ones, but just not enough. The, these two little groups of holy people, the Dominicans and the Franciscans, were literally a godsend for these bishops. And... In a short time after their deaths, in the 1220s and 30s, you gradually see a development by which the bishops are using these little groups. They go onto the housing estates or the shanty towns on the edge of towns where there's no parish provision and where the poor people are and the land is cheap. And today you can sometimes find, like Santa Maria Novella you mentioned, that's the railway station. You find them on railway stations and bus stations. Santa Croce is the bus station in Florence. Blackfriars in London is another case. It's because it's around the city wall, the old city wall. And they establish themselves there as group practices, rather like our doctors today. They have three or four, sometimes more, the Dominicans are bigger. They know how to preach. They, they look after each other. My bishop, Visconti of Pisa, said, poverty, chastity and obedience. He said, poverty and chastity, they see to each other. They, they don't break their obedience. They're sometimes a bit um, disobedient. But otherwise, they keep the rules. They preach for nothing. They're learned. Um, and you can go along and listen to their sermons, so that in some ways they're an improved model of the parish clergy. Now, in order to make them that, adjustments were needed in their original order, particularly in the case of the Franciscans. And I think that the second-generation Franciscans are the ones who modify. They still have a picture of Francis on the wall, quite right, um, and, of course, a famous type of portrait of St Francis. He's still the ideal, saying, resist the temptation to avarice, whatever you do, live very simply... But meanwhile, you can study, learn, and you've got to you know, serve the people as if you were a parish priest. 
Would you, excuse me, excuse me, would you go, would you follow, would you, you, you said you might, your colleagues here might demur. Would you well, like I, to demur or would you like to conquer? Sandy has described extremely well half of the things that they were doing. <laughs> I mean, besides being in shanty towns near these 13th century railway stations, they were also uh, in the rather more developed 13th century universities. I mean, mm. these, mm-hmm. these years in the, the, uh, the years before and after 1215 are really remarkable years in history. Of course, we all know in England we were having Magna Carta. You get the foundations, foundation charters of the great universities of Paris and, uh, and Oxford. You get the approval of these orders. And you get the gradual recovery of the works of Aristotle, which I think you mentioned earlier. In the universities, the... The Dominicans uh, are like fish in water at the universities. They were founded to be learned uh, scholars, and here is a marvellous environment for them. I can't say they were as welcomed by the ordinary clergy who were in the university as you were saying they were in the shanty towns. <laughs> Indeed, the, um, partly because they... Uh, they were willing to teach for nothing, and because they were rather cleverer on the whole, they were pretty unpopular with the people who already held the chairs in the universities. And um, St Thomas Aquinas began his uh, career as a lecturer as a strikebreaker because the university was on strike against these uh, uh, jumped-up uh, mendicants coming in. But very quickly, uh, they did become the leading philosophers and theologians and were accepted as such. As I say, it was, this was very easy for the Dominicans. Uh, for the Franciscans, it did take, as Sandy was saying, a, a degree of adjustment. And the, um, the great St. Bonaventure was the person who presided over this, of um, preserving the uh, mysticism of St. Francis uh, without his impracticality. So can we, I'll come to him in, in a moment, just to establish a bit more about the universities. Can you take us through the way that they planted themselves in universities? Was this a deliberate, was this again a deliberate act to, to, to get a grip on the, uh, on the thinking of the time and to, con- to, to, to steer it, even control it? Oh, well, very much for the Dominicans. I mean, this is the whole point of Dominic's, Dominic's mission, I think, has been made clear, really. And that's why um, the idea is to have a university at Toulouse, which is a sort of centre of heretical activity, because um, Dominic very clearly sees the only way to beat the heretics is to argue with them. And the Franciscans, it, it isn't, you know, it's much, much more complicated and paradoxical with the Franciscans. And I don't think, I mean, they, they sort of follow along and, and join the Dominicans in this, but it isn't really quite what they want to do. They are much more on the ground in the shanty towns, um, where, as Sandy says, they're very much needed, though they are also um, resented, of course, by the parish priests mm. and the secular clergy, just as in the way at the universities there's a lot of trouble with the secular masters. So among the um, the local boys who, who think they're doing their job well enough um, are pretty fed up with the Franciscans coming in and the Dominicans and attracting all the crowds and sort of being the being the popular preachers and and really sort of setting up sort of you know fan groups i mean people have to um antony Padua is told he's got to stop preaching so that people can get back to the harvest um and this sort of cult of of popular preachers doesn't go down well with everybody but what's happening alexander from alexander murray from what you said what you said in the previous uh, contribution, it seems to me that, that the bishops saw these, uh, well, you used the word godsend, didn't you, um, and used them uh, and, and brought them in and employed them with brilliantly for the reforming and the future of the church. 
Will you? Yes. yes, I would accept that. I mean, the official line, and you see the, the successive popes, I mean, Innocent III died, but then others came along, and they saw that this was a very valuable... Here, here were two very valuable groups, and I think one might mention at this point, other pictures always get complicated, that around the middle of the century... They had 13th century. The 13th century. Yeah. Um, they, the popes actually encouraged other similar groups, and so you get the Austin friars, the Augustinian friars, and the... Um, Carmelites and the Servites in Florence, that lovely church by Brunelleschi is a Servite church, other little groups, and the popes do the same with them. They say, look, you may want to pray like Bilio and sit in the mountains, but I'm going, to, I'm going to approve you if you're prepared to take a rule which allows me to put you in a town somewhere and you can pray there and you, you know, do the things. And at Worcester College at Oxford, that's where the Carmelites were once. And uh, it, right in the middle of towns, he can plant these other groups so that the uh, the popes and the bishops positively use these people and you can actually find documents in which they're reckoning up, rather like when planning permission is given for a supermarket today. They look at the population of a town, how many m- supermarkets does it require, and that f- some of the French historians, Jacques Le Goff particularly, have done little surveys to see that you can actually measure the population of the town in 12, 60, 70, 80 by the number of mendicant convents that there are in it, because they allow, I've forgotten what it is, but so many, for so many population. And that's all the bishops join in with this. I mean, I think the only thing I would want to, to add to that is that, to some extent, um, this isn't just it's a good idea that the popes are having. It's the popes are actually having to struggle also to contain the amount of popular fervour that there is. And so by sort of backing certain orders, they're actually also trying to, if you like, clamp down on others, and they're trying to channel um, the popular devotion that is into certain um, recognised groups and actually they get worried all the time that there are too many of them so in 1274 they say hang on some of you um, we're just not going to support any more and I think again the whole success of the Franciscan and Dominicans depends on there being people who are them forming little groups among themselves have got a kind of do-it-yourself religion going and so it isn't um, it isn't a top-down movement, the, 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 the no, mendicant. But it's partly triggered, isn't it, by the okay. Lateran Council that you were mentioning mm-hmm. earlier because of the obligation which it placed on all Christians to confess their sins once a year to a priest. And that placed an enormous new demand on, yes. on But it's clergy. to their priest. Again, I think you have to see that um, as, as a way of the latter of the Pope trying to make sure that you've got kind of tabs on people. Um, that, that decree says to your own priest. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems is that the Franciscans and Dominicans come along and they're not the local priests. Exactly, they are because the local other priests people. can't answer the demands. Yes, yeah. but again, it's, um, you know, there are all these lay penitential movements that I think the Pope is, yeah. is trying, to, trying to keep tabs on because of the tendency of many of them to become heretical. And many of these groups, as far as one can tell, Actually, they're not even sure themselves whether they're heretical or orthodox. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, sometimes they think they're one thing one day and one thing the next. And so I, th- I think the Pope's got a real problem, and the Franciscan and the Dominicans are the answer to that because he can try and say, well, actually, um, these, the, the, these are, this, this is the order you've got to join. Just, just can we sort of tidy everything up? Can we try and, and streamline this devotion? But, but as, the, as the century goes on, the Franciscans become part of the problem. Oh, indeed. Part, part so of the solution. That sort of is blows, to say there are a number of, of schismatic Franciscans mm. who themselves are regarded by the popes as heretical and then they condemn the pope for being heretical mm. because he's unsound on apostolic poverty and so on. Can I ask a, a question to, to, to both of you? So far as I know, the Dominicans 
never split up into different rival groups, never had a serious reform movement, whereas the Franciscans were always splitting into new groups. Why was there this difference? Was it just because Dominic was a better manager to begin with and Francis was too highfalutin? Well, I think Francis's ideal, because it was a higher, sort of nobler, simpler ideal, uh, ran into the problems that people with such ideals do run into. That is to say that in ordinary life they sometimes just are impossible to achieve. And consequently, I agree with you, it was the Franciscan order that had the problems. Though the Dominicans did run into a different sort of problem, as you must know, that in, in the, partly because they used to go and preach to these ladies' convents. And the, the very mystical, the real, the real monks of the Middle Ages were the nuns because they couldn't get out and they just prayed all day. And so the, the, the Dominicans would preach. And Meister Eckhart, as you know, in the beginning of the 14th century, um, with his mystical ideas about union with God, does one become, when one's deep in prayer, does one almost become God? There were certain statements which he made, which some of his enemies said, you know, that doesn't sound too good. You sound as if you're sort of being pantheistic or um, thinking you're God yourself. So I think the Dominicans had their own special problems, mm-hmm. not least uh, when Aquinas came, as you know very well, on the scene that, that there were people for and against Aquinas, but that's mm-hmm. another subject. So the Dominicans ran into intellectual problems, but the Franciscans were the ones that really were explosive in their ideology. Can I just turn now to the on the universities? The, the, the Franciscans have, have, uh, are the arm that does a great deal for, for Rome, including uh, mopping up lay penitentials, other small... They represent the lay penitentials. I mean, the strategy which has been brought in by Alexander Murray is, is brilliant. We've, we've got these people wandering around, causing a lot of trouble. We'll have one lot, our lot, wandering around, and, they, and we have heresies that we have to fight not only with arms but with thought, and we've got this other lot, the Dominicans. What happens is they murder at the universities. The Franciscans go to learning uh, and so do the Dominicans and this powers the universities at that time, particularly emerging as their own Paris and Oxford. So that's where we are there. Can you tell us, Anthony Kenny, about Bonaventure's role in disseming and what, what he was and what he did that was important? Well, he, he was both a, a mystic and an, and an administrator and his mystical works are still read today as works of spirituality. In, uh, in terms of the sort of philosophical background, I think it would be fair to say that, that um, Bonaventure and Thomas, who were almost exact contemporaries, that was born and died in Wallace the same year, that Bonaventure and Thomas Aquinas. Um, Bonaventure represents the more traditional side of theology, the Augustinian uh, side, g- going back to, to the um, St. Augustine. And he's a Franciscan. Uh, he's a Franciscan. Um, whereas Aquinas is much more uh, the innovator uh, or renovator, that is, he is very keen to uh, incorporate the learning and wisdom of Aristotle uh, into the, um, the patrimony of, of the church. Um, Bonaventure knew... Uh, knew Aristotle quite well too, but he is, on the whole, wanting as little change as possible in traditional Augustinian theology, Um, whereas Thomas Aquinas uh, wants to... uh, uh, Once he's made Aristotle, as it were, safe for Christianity by denying some of Aristotle's pagan ideas, for instance, that the world had existed forever... Aquinas says, no, no, that, that's quite wrong. Um, the world, as we know from Genesis, was created by God. It had a beginning. But 
Aquinas wanted to take over Aristotle's psychology, um, the idea of a, a human being uh, as essentially a, a rational animal, not a not uh, a kind of soul imprisoned temporarily in a body, but that the human beings were basically animals. They were different from the other animals because they were rational. They had reason and intellect, and that intellect would survive death, but only as a kind of interim thing to the resurrection of the body, which was the, the ultimate glorious goal that everyone was to go to. The, of course, the... Um, Franciscans also believed in, in the creation of the world, the resurrection of the body, and so on. But they tended rather more towards a, a platonic idea, I think, of the, uh, of, of the soul as partially Im imprisoned in, in the body. And um, uh, after St. Thomas's death, there was something of a, of a reaction against uh, his Aristotelian teaching about human psychology, uh, and some of his propositions um, were condemned uh, in Paris in, and in Oxford. Um, St. Thomas, for instance, believed that the, the intellectual soul controlled everything that happened in the body. The, uh, all the animal functions and, and the vegetative functions, digestion, sleep and everything, these were all controlled by the intellectual soul, which was the single form that made the body a human being. This was rejected by the Franciscans and indeed by, in the end by some of the Dominicans. Um, when St Thomas was canonised uh, as a saint a few years after his death, uh, the condemnation in Paris was revoked. Uh, so far as I know, the Oxford condemnation has never been revoked. So, uh, you know, if any of us teach that there is only a single form in the human body, uh, the Vice-Chancellor might have an action against us, though I imagine he has other things on his mind at the moment. Alexander Murray, can I... Let's stick with Aquinas, because he's so... We must come back and do a pr proper programme on Aquinas, or several. Um, this is an aristocratic young man who, uh, with a family with... Uh, hopes for him to take over one of the great abbeys and Benedictine abbeys become a wealthy prince of the church but still a prince of Italy and so on. He determined to go and join uh, his mendicant poverty order and he's entranced by Aristotle. So he, the double thing is that... Now, just to stick with Aquinas and his thinking, Aristotle, as it were, came on the scene through translations which had been made by Persian and Islamic scholars and then translated into Latin. Uh, these translations seemed to fire the imagination of the cleverest young men. They thought, this is new, Aristotle is marvellous, we must do something about him. But he was three or four hundred years before Christ, three hundred years before Christ, he was therefore officially a pagan, there were things in him that didn't work. And I, I, terribly simple, I really do apologise, but, but Aquinas set himself the task of trying to make it work in to the Catholic faith while still having a real serious reverence. I think that's a proper word for Aristotle himself. Can you, can you yes, <laughs> tell us how I, to go about it? So that's roughly right, what, the, the picture you've given. Um, before Aquinas came on the scene, he was sort of before he was born, in fact, um, in, the, in the 12th century, they'd got a little bit of Aristotle in Latin. The logical works had come in from ancient times through the early Middle Ages. But then Spain, particularly, and Sicily, were places where the Islamic world and the Christian world were in contact. And translation began to take place in the 12th century, and it turned out that these books were very interesting. And when they were read in Latin, because all the scholars 
had to be able to read Latin then, there was a demand for them, um, just because they were interesting. And Aristotle wrote about all sorts of things, about meteors and about fish and plants and human beings and animals, the mind, metaphysics. He wrote a fantastic uh, range of things he wrote about. And the conservatives... In, in the meaning of the people who wanted to keep things the same, were a bit suspicious of all this. That the logic was all right. They could cope with the logic. They dealt with that. But in the early 13th century, some of the people reading Aristotle were coming out with some rather funny views, including that the world had existed forever. And there was another one, which is that when I die, my soul will just go back into store into the general world soul, and so that uh, when I'm called up for judgment, I won't be there, this sort of thing. The, uh, lots of little doctrines. You have to be as clever, if I may say so, as Anthony to understand all these doctrines. They're, they're very um, technical, some of them. But you can see that there are, the, some of the doctrines are sort of strange. Now, what, when Aquinas turned up in Paris, and he was very interested in theology and philosophy, he read these books and said, now let's look and see what's in here. Aristotle, as you just pointed out, lived long before Christianity. The medieval Christians had to deal with their ancestors all the time. I mean, the Latin Cicero and people, they had to have a place for the pagans, so-called pagans. And uh, Plato was known of, Neoplatonists were known quite well, and Aristotle was known of. But here was a challenge. Now, what Aquinas did, and I'll try and keep this as simple as I can, though that will necessarily falsify the whole process. These translations, by the way, they weren't all made from Arabic. Some of them were made from Greek directly. Um, they, um, there was a huge sort of interplay between the and often by Jews, and they came through several languages, sometimes sort of into Hebrew and then out into Latin again. There was a huge translation business, and pioneers used to do it. What had happened was that Aristotle had been, uh, when he was first translated into Arabic, the, and the sort of second phase of Islam, early Islam was very sort of puritanical and you know, learning, but in the Baghdad phase, um, uh, the Abbasid period, some of the old cultures came up in Persia and in Spain, and Islamic scholars started studying Aristotle, thought he was wonderful. They also read Plato. And some of the versions that were coming into Europe actually had got commentaries on them, which and, and, and what Aquinas pointed out is that some of these dangerous doctrines are actually in the commentaries. On the question of the eternity of the world, he said, well, look, Aristotle didn't know he wasn't there, nor were we, but on faith we think that it was created by God. It's part of the whole package of God is that he created the world. Um, but, uh, he said some of these doctrines are actually not in Aristotle at all, and he sorted that out, and then he took issue, he put Aristotle in his place. It's perfectly reasonable to read Aristotle. He was a mere philosopher trying to use his mind to study the world, which is what you should do and I should do, and what Jesus said we should do. He said, there's one place in the Gospel where he says, look at the sky, you can tell when there's weather's going to be bad tomorrow. Well, look at the world. You know, you should be able to tell. And Aquinas rather took up this line, that if you look at the world carefully, you'll, you'll get there in the end, you'll need faith in the end, but it'll take you a long way, a bit like the 18th century um, people. And Aquinas both sorted out what was the real Aristotle, what was commentary, and he pointed out the things that were contaminating to Aristotelian doctrine. And these turn out not to be so much Aristotle, but actually a version, as Anthony just said, a version of Plato, Neoplatonism, which is a sort of late Platonism, which is, in my view, a not all that too distant cousin of Manichaeism. Mm -hmm. it's, it's Manichaeism with specs, really. There was a remarkable turnaround, wasn't there? Within well, that was a tour de force. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't seem all that simple either. Without <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Within 50 years, you've got 
you move from a time when most of Aristotle's works are forbidden to be read in the yes. universities to a time when they're obligated <laughs> yes. to, be, to be read uh, in the university. I mean, there are, I think, two other figures we should mention, as it were, before, mm. um, uh, 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 in connection with Aquinas. In Aquinas's own teacher, a Dominican, uh, Albert the Great, mm. um, was uh, uh, taught him in Cologne. Albert was a, a, a German. And... Um, Albert was one of the first to appreciate the importance of Aristotle and, mm. in a sense, put Aquinas onto Aristotle. Mm. Um, he was a far less discriminating reader of Aristotle than uh, Aquinas was. I mean, Albert wrote a, a vast amount of stuff uh, ranging from rather serious logical commentary to the wildest magical speculations and so on. Uh, if you're looking for a a forerunner of Renaissance science. It wouldn't be Aquinas, it wouldn't be Bonaventure, it would be um, Albert among the Dominicans and among the Franciscans, Roger Bacon. But the Oxford person that I had in mind was not so much uh, Bacon uh, as Robert Grosdale, who yes. was the um, first chancellor of Oxford University. He was not himself a Franciscan, but he lectured in the Franciscan community. Uh, he himself was one of those who translated uh, Aristotle directly from the uh, from the Greek. I'm and really I'm sorry about this, but we really do need to do a program and or several on Aquinas. And I'm very pleased we got we stayed with Aquinas. A lot of questions are in front of me, ladies and gentlemen, which are not going to be asked this morning. But there you go. I will finish Liza, by saying, can you just briefly tell us what you think the intellectual legacy was for the next hundred or two hundred years of the Dominicans and Franciscans and how it might have influenced what we brought in as the Renaissance? Well, I mean, with the Dominicans, it's, it's clearly Aquinas. With the Franciscans, I don't personally think it's an intellectual legacy so much as a way of setting the pattern for the devotional piety of the later Middle Ages for this um, new emphasis on the humanity of Christ, empathy with the way Christ lived. I mean, one of the sort of um, most significant moments, I suppose, um, of the Franciscan legacy is when Francis actually puts real hay. He has a sort of crib at Grecchio. He brings in real hay, a real ox and an ass, and this is the nativity. And it's that kind of way of involving um, everybody in Christ's life that is really the Franciscan legacy. And the Dominican? Dominicans, I said, I think it's Aquinas, Aquinas. It's Aquinas, Aquinas. And, and all that that means, which is, as we've seen is, is, is um, monumental. I would like to shove in two volumes more of, of, mm -hmm. of writers besides Aquinas, but another time. Another the, time. The, the popular uh, awfully sorry. legacy really, of the Dominicans was the Rosary, wasn't it? That was a piece well, of Well, that's true. I mean, that's so that one mustn't sure. overemphasize yeah. and the Salve Regina, which is, again, I, sort of yeah. popular part of Sorry to interrupt that. They've got, <laughs> got a lot of work to do on Radio 4 this morning. Thank you very much, <laughs> Henry and Eliza, <laughs> Anthony Kenny and Alexander Murray. Next week, we'll be talking about pragmatism. Pragmatism. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash Radio 4.